You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Preaching out of the book of James this afternoon, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the plan was this week I was going to preach out of the uh, Gospel of John. And uh, it was going well. I had the sermon half done and I was feeling really good about it. And I uh, went to work on Friday, and then I came home Saturday to sit down and get back after it. And uh, lo and behold, it was gone. I had this sermon from James prepared, and uh, I don't know what you did this week to deserve what you're about to get, but God is providential. God is sovereign. So that's the lesson. I don't know what you did this week, but... but You're about to get a blast from James, as we read. Or the lesson is, next time I need to push the save button. One of those two. However, here we are. James' continued, James's continued assault uh, takes a bit of a turn today, as as we're going to see. Uh, He has been upfront and direct so far. For those of you that, that uh, are visiting us today, I've been working through both the Gospel of John and the Epistle of James, and I interchanged them, and so here we are in James. So we've, we've made it through this far, so far. Today, um, as, as we've, we've seen before, James has been blunt, but he's been rather kind, right? Uh, that changes today a bit. Uh, this is a good indication that as James is building his his argument, as he gains momentum and shines a light on the lives of those in the church that he's writing to, uh, he's getting maybe what we might call a bit more animated. He's getting a bit more serious in his charge. Uh, This is serious stuff, and he wants you and I to be aware of just how serious it is. He uses terminology that is maybe shocking to the senses, This is the brother of Jesus, James. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He is one of the most godly and authoritative people in antiquity. And yet today, 
as we have seen and we're going to see further, he pulls no punches. He starts off by saying, What causes quarrels and fights among you? For some, this question marks James going in another direction from what he was writing previously, that this is a new thought pattern. Others, however, feel that this is just a continuation of what James was speaking about earlier. And I I land there. Uh, If you'll remember, for those of you that have been here, if you remember all the way back to the starting of the uh, the epistle of James uh, in this series, um, this book has been criticized by many as uh, James's writing style may appear to uh, be rather choppy. Uh, some have accused it of having little coherence. Yet, as we've seen, as we've seen thus far, James is very coherent, and that his thoughts, while advancing his argument or exhortation, they advance in such a way that it's not always obvious from a, a quick read, a quick skim over. It might not seem obvious. This is one of those questions that advances his argument from what he was speaking about previously, but isn't obvious at first glance. Key to this con- uh, the conti- uh, continuity, is the word I'm looking for, is the recognition that James's discussion of wisdom in verses 13 through 18 is very specifically focused. He's not really interested in talking about wisdom per se, but in that fruit of wisdom, which brings order and peace to the church. If you remember, we had, we had worldly wisdom and we had God's wisdom, and God's wisdom brought with it order and peace. Seen in this light, verses 13 to 18, prepare the way perfectly for James's rebuke of quarreling in the church. If you'll remember back to the last sermon, James asked the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? This week he adds, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James gives us the two kinds of wisdom. Last time, worldly and heavenly wisdom, as mentioned. Heavenly wisdom produces what? It produces good conduct, which we saw in verse 13. It produces peace, it produces gentleness, it produces uh, the ability to be open to reason, mercy, good fruit, impartiality, sincerity. We see all that from verse 17. James, by asking this question of fighting and quarreling, is returning to the fruit of worldly wisdom. He's returning to the fruit of worldly wisdom. And the first thing we need to address with this opening question in chapter 4 is the Greek wording. James uses some Greek that can be a little problematic. In the uh, NRSV, uh, the NRSV captures the sense of the Greek better here by stating, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? James isn't giving the church an opportunity to dispute the accusation that there is in fact fighting and quarreling among them doesn't give you that option. James is simply acknowledging that this behavior is going on and it is an ongoing problem. And James is well aware of it. Quarrels in the Greek is polemos, which we get the word polemics from. It's a style of argumentation that is noted by its aggressiveness, uh, its 
pointedness, it's antagonistic, and it can often be somewhat hostile in its nature. The opposite of this is irenic, which is friendly argumentation and passive in its style and approach. So you have irenic and polemic. The word fights in the Greek is machi, which is a very strong military word that denotes physical violence. So James is talking physical violence. One of the problems of exegeting the text here is trying to determine if James is being factual or is James being uh, hyperbolic. Is he using hyperbole here? If he's reporting this as factual, things in the church that he's talking to is really, really bad, right? Because in verse 2, he actually accuses them of murder. If he's speaking in hyperbole, then his accusation of murder is also in hyperbole. I tend to think that James is using hyperbole here. At least that's the that's the positive person in me saying this, right? Regardless, it doesn't really take away from the seriousness of the message. Worldly wisdom, selfish ambition, self-centeredness leads to quarrels and leads to fighting. To quarrel and fight among the body is to inflict damage to your own body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul writing to the church in Corinth states, If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When we attack and quarrel among ourselves, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. Have we not seen this happen in our own various churches that we've previously been a part of, or maybe that you're a part of now? Have you not seen this in your own lives? What happens when families and extended families quarrel and fight? It tears at the very fabric of the family bond. At least that's what I've noticed. No one comes away unscathed. Everyone suffers. So what is the cause of this quarreling and fighting? James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions are the cause, according to James. In the Greek, the word is hedon, or hedony, which we get the word hedonism from, which is a pursuit of that which makes us most happy. The pursuit of hedonism. Everyone is a hedonist. That's the bad news. Everyone is a hedonist. The cry of the Christian hedonist, as uh, John Piper likes to say, is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is the call of the Christian hedonist. We chase hardest after the things of God because he is where we get the most happiness and joy from. But in James's sense here, it is regarding negative pleasure or self-gratification in almost every case in the New Testament, this word is not used in a positive sense. And from the context of this verse, we have no reason to think that James is using it positively. James is referring to those passions that are self-centered. He is referring to those that are selfish in nature. Another grammatical problem we run into here uh, when it comes to understanding James's point is the use of you. In the Greek, it really means in your members. 
Most translations interpret this to mean within you, the passions that you have within you. But what does this mean? Does this mean an internal struggle within individuals, or does this mean a struggle between different people within the church? When you look at the commentaries, you will find both arguments. For sake of argument, I would simply ask the question, who cares? Does it matter which one he's talking about? If there is selfishness and quarreling, a selfishness and quarreling spirit within us, within us as individuals, or whether there is selfishness and quarreling amongst one another, is the result any different? I think we can all agree that our default mode of operating, of operation, is one of selfishness, is it not? Or is it just me? At one, at what point? Does laying down our lives for others and thinking of others, others ourselves last, so thinking of others first and thinking of ourselves last become our default? Does it really happen this side of heaven? This is what sanctification is all about, which is why I believe it's fair to say that very few, if any, actually get to the point where it's automatic that we think of ourselves last. I think many have the ability to think before they act. That usually comes with age. We realize that opening our mouths first or acting first is not always the best thing. So we learn over time to, to let our mouth catch up with our mind, right? But uh, in this act of thinking, they are able to pause and put others before themselves, but I still think that in many cases it's, it's not automatic. It's a learned thing. So back to the text. We fight and quarrel because we have selfish passions that are not healthy for our own selves. It is not healthy for the church at large. We do have an internal struggle with selfishness that at times rears its ugly head against those around us. And then James expands upon the reasons behind these issues when he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James almost waxes poetic here, doesn't he? He sets up what's called a two-clause structure. What he does is he states a fact. You desire and do not have. And then he states the result. So you murder. Right? You desire and do not have. So you murder. I find it hard to believe that James is referring to actually killing one another here. But I guess anything is possible. Why do people murder? Isn't it due to desire? A desire to have something that they can't have with that person or something they have that they can't? Whether it's material possessions, freedom from a contract, whatever. People generally murder when a desire for something they can't have reaches a place of desperation. Would murder happen if heavenly wisdom dominated our thinking? We would all know the answer is no. 
It is only when we allow our selfish ambitions, our self-centered desires, this worldly wisdom to infect our thinking that we would ever act in such a terrible manner. And if James is speaking in hyperbole, which I believe he is, does this not emphasize the seriousness of selfishness in the church and in your family? Selfishness and passions and evil desires are a cancer. They are a cancer which will infect and kill the body, whether it be individually or as a church body. Fact, you covet and cannot obtain result, so you fight and quarrel in order to get what you covet. Coveting is a grievous sin. It is number 10 on the Ten Commandments. I've stated this many times before, but our world today doesn't give much credence to the Ten Commandments anymore, especially this one. In fact, I just watched recently uh, the documentary Collision. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a documentary that has Doug Wilson against uh, Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist. And Christopher Hitchens says right in the documentary, he looks at the Ten Commandments, especially this one of coveting, and says, our entire system of economics is based upon coveting. Coveting is actually a really good thing. I think Christopher Hitchens misses the boat as far as what the biblical idea of coveting is. The biblical idea of coveting is coveting that which is not yours, coveting your neighbor's wife, coveting your neighbor's car, coveting your neighbor's house. Not, I want a house like my neighbor's, but I want my neighbor's house. I want my neighbor's wife. I want my neighbor's car. That's what biblical coveting is. Our entire westernized culture is not based on love thy neighbor, but on coveting. One of the most culture-shocking things that Eastern cultures experienced and complain about when they come and experience the Western culture is our need for stuff, our need for other people's stuff. As we touched on last sermon, to cover your neighbor's things, especially their money, which is what socialism and communism is about, right, is an act of virtue. Socialism is considered by many an act of virtue, coveting my neighbor's money. Our society is swinging hard towards a socialist mindset that depends upon the idea that what your neighbor has is rightly yours. That's the idea. Coveting leads to the breaking of every other commandment. It is not to be taken, like, uh, not to be taken lightly. Fact, you do not have. Reason, you do not ask. I love the direction that James takes here. Remember, he's addressing the church. He speaks about selfish desire and coveting, then moves directly to, you do not have because you do not ask. Why would Christians not pray for the things that they want? Is it because they are confused regarding what it is they really want? Augustine, in his famous book, Confessions, states, you have made, he's praying here in the book, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
Is it possible that James is referring to the rest that we all hunger for? The shalom that only God can provide, but in our fallen condition, we fail to ask God for that peace? We fail to ask God for that peace. But instead, we ask for that which we can that we think can fulfill those desires? We get restless and we start casting about for anything that can fill that void. It's what we're famous for, even momentarily. We fail to ask for that which, we, which will take away our selfish desires. We fail to ask for that which will lead us away from our coveting hearts. We fail to ask for more of God We fail to ask to be closer to God. We fail to ask for the wisdom of God. Instead, fact, you ask. Result, which you do not receive. Why? Didn't James just blast us for not asking? Because you ask wrongly, James tells us. You ask wrongly because you ask in order to spend it on your passions. God is not interested in your best life now. God is not interested in feeding your wicked wants and desires. Not if you are truly his children. The day you pray to God for unneeded material possessions or positions of power or authority for your own glory and he starts granting them is the day you have been judged by God. And God help you on that day. It is a blessing from God that if you are so blinded by selfish desires that you would dare to pray to God for them, that he simply ignores your prayer. It's a blessing. Why? Because it should give you pause to ask, why am I not receiving that which I have prayed for? Then maybe you open your book to the, to, to the epistle of James and, and you read this very, ver, uh, this very verse, very verse, two Vs. Because you ask wrongly, because you ask wrongly, you selfish child. This isn't hard to figure out. We all, most of us have kids here, especially our small church. We got, the Anglicans are very jealous. They wish they had kids. They don't remember the last time they used that. So whenever we show up early, they, they're like grandparents who are just flocking to the kids. They, they love it. However, as young families, we know, and as parents, we know that we don't grant every selfish desire to our children, do we? We don't, we don't say yes to everything our kids ask for. Why? Because we know it's not good for our children. That's why. Neither is your selfish desires, and your Father in heaven is not going to grant you the things which are going to be detrimental to your spiritual health. As I said, God help us the day that he does. James then gives the church a blast. This is where things get really... James turns, turns it up a notch. You adulterous people! That's not very winsome, is it? You adulterous people. The abrupt and harsh, you adulterous people, marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament. Here, if anywhere, 
we find the heart of James's letter. You need to remember how James had addressed the recipients of this letter. It's quite shocking, right, when we think about it thus far. He calls them brothers. Six times thus far, he's called them brothers. He says, my dear brothers, three times thus far. Now James blasts them by calling them adulterers. In the Greek, James uses the feminine form of adulteress, which, if we take it literally, would indicate that James is pointing the finger at the women of the church that are not being faithful. However, we can see from the context that this is not the case. This is not what James means. What does he mean? Turn with me for a minute to Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 6, if you have it. Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 6. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. We see this sort of language throughout the Old Testament where God is portrayed as a husband and his people Israel in the Old Testament and the church, the true Israel in the New Testament, is referred to as his bride. In times of Israel's unfaithfulness, what does the Lord say? Jeremiah 3 verse 20, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel declares the Lord. James here is clearly calling out a treacherous and adulterous church by acting like the world, by adopting the mindset of the unbelievers, by bringing in a worldview that is not godly, but instead is wisdom of the world. They have committed spiritual adultery. Why must we be careful as a church Why do we call out those that are straying? Because Old Testament Israel thought they could sprinkle a little Baalism here. They could include a little Molochism here and there. They could go to the high places and they could worship at the Asherah poles. No big deal, right? They could do all these things, but they could still call it worshiping God and be faithful. God says otherwise. To bring in foreign and worldly wisdom into the church is to offer strange fire. It is to invite a new member into the marriage bed, to put it bluntly. What James says next should be a massive wake-up call for us, especially in our world today. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity With God. I'll be honest with you, I cringe when I read this. I absolutely cringe when I read it. I cringe because I'm so worried that I've been infected by the thinking of this age, that I've adopted so many of the world's ways that I don't even realize how worldly I might be. 
I didn't grow up in the church. I was educated in the public school system. I went to public university. I didn't become a Christian until I was 33. And it terrifies me how often I can easily lapse into worldly thinking. I have to fight it every day. I worry that I'm a fish that doesn't realize it's wet. Fish doesn't know any different, does it? Do I even know what James means by this? Do you know what James means by this? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I am a man of my age. I know this. I know that years from now there will be people that look back on this age of the church and scream, why didn't they do something about abortion? What What were they doing? Why didn't they get arrested? Why didn't they lock themselves to the doors of the abortion mills until society woke up? Is that unfair? Don't we, today, look back at a place like Nazi Germany and say, why didn't the church do something? Why was the church complicit in what happened there? Don't we do that? We're quick to point our fingers back. Don't we hold up people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer as heroes of the faith for dying for the cause? As a churchman who did something? He tried. How friendly are we towards the world today? How friendly are we towards the world today? As a church, how friendly are we? Now before we all despair and go get ourselves arrested, uh, here's some good news. In antiquity, the word friendship actually meant something. It means It meant far more in antiquity than it does today. To be friends would mean to stand with, side by side, an ally. We're not talking about acquaintances here. To be a real friend in the sense that James is using here is to mean something like your best friend. So so think about a very close relationship here today. Their side is your side. You've got their back and they have yours. Their worldview is your worldview. Thankfully, when I understand friendship terminology in a biblical sense, I start to feel a lot better. I don't love the world. I don't love the things of this world. I don't like the wisdom and philosophies of this world. I find them silly. I find them nonsensical. I find them sad. Because of this, I feel that I am indeed a friend of God. Praise be to Him. To be at enmity with God is to be hostile towards Him. You and I have... Choices to make. We are either friends with God and therefore hostile towards the world and its wisdom, or we are friends with the world and hostile towards God. There is no in-between. If you try to be friends with the world while calling yourself a Christian, you are being unfaithful to God. Churches that fly inappropriate flags that are abhorrent to God, that's what this is talking about. 
That's what this is talking about. Siding with those that do things and promote things that are abhorrent. One of the most strongly worded words in all of the biblical scriptures you can use to show disgust for something. Abhorrent. And the church is promoting it. This is to be friendly towards the world and hostile to God. That's what that means. This is why we often say hard things here, like if you are pro-abortion, you're not a Christian. You can't be. You are siding yourself with the culture of death, the culture which God abhors. How can you be a Christian and side with that deathly thinking? If you are pro-anything which is contrary to God's clear teaching in Scripture, at best, you're in danger This is where diligent prayer and study is so vital for us in the church. It's vital for us. For those of you that belong to this church, you've been given homework. I said I was going to check on you every week to see, and I've been delinquent in that. But have you been doing your homework? Are you doing your studies? It's vital that you do it. We must think clearly. We must see clearly. We must be obedient to the word of God. Because our default position is to be worldly. That's our default position. And so when you wander away from the church, when you don't come to church, when you don't read your Bible, when you don't study God's word, when you don't pray, you're a fish in the water that's starting to go with the flow. That's what happens. Preachers don't stand up here and go, Come to church! Because we like rear ends in the seats, although we do, that's beside the point. You're to be in community with the church. You're to study God's word because if you don't, you will start to go with the flow. You will wander from God. And we've seen that time and time again in God's church. We'll slip back into our old ways of thinking. James then once again gives us a line which has really been problematic for scholars. It says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now I don't have time to go through the entire Sunday school lesson that this verse alone requires to iron out. But I will acknowledge that the Greek doesn't really clear up the confusion. And here's the confusion. There's a few things. Start with number one. There is no scripture anywhere that says this. Nowhere. What is James quoting? Or is he even quoting scripture? Or is it hypothetical? Second problem. Due to the lack of punctuation in the manuscripts, what spirit is he referring to? Is he referring to our spirit or his spirit? Third problem, is the intense jealousy or envy, is it positive or is it negative? Lastly, who is the object and the subject of the statement? The Greek doesn't help. The English doesn't help. All these questions, all these questions and problems are, are very real. So for the purposes of the sermon today, I will, I will acknowledge that others here may disagree You may disagree with how I've answered these questions. 
I actually believe that the NIV has the uh, correct understanding of what James is trying to get at here. It says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? I think the NIV nailed it. With that, here is how I would answer these questions. First one, James is quoting the Bible, but he's not quoting any particular passage. Instead, I believe he is summing up the entirety of what we would call biblical theology. In essence, he is saying, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Second, I would argue that the context demands that the spirit is not the Holy Spirit, but our own spirit. Thirdly, I would argue that the vocabulary of the Greek strongly indicates that the envy being used here is being used in a negative sense. Fourthly, therefore, the subject of the sentence is the human spirit. So, if I got all this correct, and it's a big if, but I think it makes sense. If that's all correct, then James's point is that scripture, uh, scripture rightly testifies that human history is one long story of intense envy and self-striving. I believe the history of mankind gives this interpretation a strong vote of confidence. James finishes, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is writing to the church, and he's revealing the worldly issues that the church is facing. And he confronts those issues head on. Once again, this is an exhortation to review our Christian lives. Over and over and over again in the epistle of James, he gives us opportunity to review our Christian lives. If we as Christians find this type of thinking in our lives, the good news is that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. If we would but humble ourselves, his mercy and grace abound all the more. So in conclusion, James tackles issue after issue, and he does so relentlessly. This is a relentless letter. It would be very easy for us as Christians to throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. Folks, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. You can't do it. You can't do it perfectly. This is why Christ's life was necessary. And that's why Christ's life is so glorious. The sinless lamb who lived the perfect life that you and I fail to do every day died at the hands of his father and he was risen as one who was not worthy of death for death could not hold him. He ascended and is now sitting at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning even now. Ruling and reigning now. God asks of his people that they humble themselves and submit to his commandments. And he will give grace upon grace, knowing full well we fall short. Know that the Lord died for us, and that our obedience, while imperfect, 
is a reflection of the love that we have for him. Our obedience is a reflection of the love that we have for him. Do you love the world or do you love God? How do your thoughts and actions, how does your life answer this question? Would you pray with me? Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the epistle of James. Behind 1 John, it has to be practically one of the hardest and most hard-hitting letters in all of the Bible. And Lord, we thank you for strong words. We thank you for strong uh, actions. We, We thank you for direction. And we thank you that you give grace upon grace and that we as your children, while we fall short each and every week, when we humble ourselves, when we long for your wisdom, you give grace upon grace and that we can walk, stand up, and continue walking the narrow road that you have called us to walk. We thank you for Jesus on the cross. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.